Hello, and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. This is the second of two podcasts where we're looking at the outcomes of the COP26 Climate Summit held in Glasgow and asking, what does this mean now for policy and action in the UK? With me to discuss that is Professor Sir Charles Godfrey, Director of the Oxford Martin School at the University of Oxford. Professor Godfrey, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Gavin. Pleasure to be here. So I want to start with the COP26 meeting itself. What's your view on the progress made by COP? Which bits were a success? Which bits were a disappointment? Overall, I was pleased by the way it went. I guess there was quite a bit of concern about how it would work out beforehand, partly because of the delays with COVID and things. I think there was some question about just how committed UK government were. I think it went well. I think Alex Sharma, uh, the team led by Peter Hill, actually uh, deserve a lot of credit. As always with COP, one would like it to go much further. I guess there are two ways of looking at the whole COP process. One is that it is too little too late. The CO2 in the atmosphere ratchets up year after year after year a sort of glass half empty or completely empty view. I guess the other way of looking at it is that it is a ratchet mechanism. So things are happening, facilitating further things to happen. I think some concrete things did happen this time round. I think agreeing on the Paris rule book is important. I think that getting the parties to come back next year with renewed ambition is important. And then some of the uh, announcements that came out in the first week of COP, for example, around methane, for example, around deforestation, were good. I guess the bit I was most disappointed on was on the financial side. I think the sort of howls of anguish from some of the low-income countries at the end, one could very much sympathise with them. Again, their expectations were never going to be met. I hope that they might have gone a bit further than than they, they did. Yes, there was a lot of concern about the wording over coal right at the end. And there was worry about India in particular getting in the way of the precise wording in the final memorandum. But if one looks at the first week, India went a long way, uh, maybe not far enough, but there was real progress there in the uh, commitments they made. I was disappointed in some countries not signing up to things. Some of the big methane emitters didn't didn't sign up. And I think there's some countries such as Australia who are really crawling and it would be nice if they accelerated. So as always, a curate's egg. I think given what expectations were a year ago, most people have been quite, um, quite pleased by what's happened. And I was going to ask you about the first week and these side deals that are a little bit of a departure from an overall agreement of all the parties which is what we come to clearly there was that as well but are these kind of side deals within the cop process going to be something that we're going to see more of and given that they don't have a kind of a an international legal framework to hold people to account how how important and useful do you think they're going to be going forward i comment as someone who is not a cop expert and exactly how COP works is uh, hugely complex. So I'm giving a sort of uh, a view it's one step back. They do involve coalitions of the willing and they don't have the legal framework from the COP Kyoto process. 
I guess there are two ways of looking at how we might make progress on uh, climate change. One is through the COP process, which has all just under 200 nations involved. And the other is through the coalitions of the willing. And you will find people who say, actually, one, only one will work. My view is that we need both. So I'm quite in favour of coalitions of, of, of the willing. I think if one looks at some of the things that have come out of Europe in the last year about really trying to put a proper price on carbon, talking about border adjustments and such, I think that is really quite optimistic. I wish it would go faster. I wish the uh, price would ratchet up more quickly. But I think pushing from both ends is going to be absolutely essential. I think there is a real role for Europe in this, and I hope that we will be involved, even though we're not part of the European community. Because if you you think of the three big blocks, you have China, who tend to be rule takers, America, who for complex political reasons are unwilling to make international rules, and then you have Europe that de facto will become the rule makers. And I think that if they act on climate change, on carbon, then they will bring many people along and the the, the border adjustments are one way in, in which that may happen. A really interesting look on the international side. Let's now turn and look at the UK. So given what's happened in COP and given where we are in the UK, what would you say are the, the kind of the immediate priorities for the UK government over the next year? I'm going to talk about the sort of area that I know a little bit more about than, say, energy, which is around land use and around food and agriculture. And I think that we have a clear understanding of what we need to do. I think that the commitments the government have made of net zero going across all sectors are brave and good, although we must remember that part of the progress we've made in net zero is because we've exported many of our emissions to other countries. And we should seriously think about calculating our emissions, not only in the um, comparative way that we report to the IPCC, but in the real way, in the real way that we cause emissions directly and indirectly. I think that the agriculture, land use, land use conversion sector is one of the hardest sectors to get to net zero or to pay or to make its contribution to net zero. Irrespective of whether you are a Brexiter or a Remainer, we're out of Europe now. We're out of the CAP. And that does give us the capacity to do interesting and innovative things and to be more agile and to move faster than, say, our friends in continental Europe who have to bring multiple uh, countries along together. So I would like to see a bit more coordination and forward planning in that, forward guidance in that. I think the government have made really interesting commitments across a broad range of different topics from uh, net zero to biodiversity, to peatland restoration, to vibrant agricultural communities and economies, as well as the, the need we have to build more houses. So I fear that those commitments are not joined up. I think we need to have at least some framework in which we can just check that these commitments, the majority of which I support and think are very sensible, they actually add up to one, because to a good approximation, when one's talking about land use and things like that, they have a, they, they, 
have to add up to one. I think going back a few years when Michael Gove was Secretary of State for the Environment and leading DEFRA, then the document he produced, which had the curious name, Health and Harmony, but if you, if you sort of ignore the name, I think it's one of the most interesting documents that have come out of an environment ministry in this country for, for ages. And it put the direction of travel of public money for public goods and where public goods are interpreted in the economic sense of the word, not something like food, which is good for the public. And I think that was adventurous. I think that has the capacity to produce a lot of societal benefits. I think that if it is applied properly, it has the capacity to bring the agricultural industry with us in a way that is otherwise going to be very difficult because we are going to ask the agriculture industry to, uh, to, to make changes. And I guess that the government is still committed to that, but it's very unclear how that is actually going to play out over the, uh, over the next few years. And in as much as the uh, Bank of England gives forward, forward guidance to the financial community about what might happen in the future so they can make sensible decisions about investments and such, I think we desperately need more specific forward guidance about how our support for rural economies is going to um, is is going to play out over the next decade, and it, it, and explicitly how that will contribute to our environmental targets and commitments. So let's pull apart a little bit why some of this is so difficult in the rural economy and the issues about land use being for food, but for other things as well. The issues about intensification of agriculture, making British agriculture commercially viable versus also we as a public, what we eat and and the fact that there may be a, a need to change our diet, but that's rather difficult and complex political issues. I mean, how do we square the circle between all these different slightly competing things so that we can move agriculture and the the funding model behind it towards a net zero direction? That's a great question. And on one hand, you can throw up your arms in the air and say it's so complex. How does one actually try and bring it together? I guess the way I look at it, it's really complex, but in one sense, it's also really simple. The challenges ahead are such that we need to make major progress on both the production side, the consumption side, as well as on waste and governance. You cut it in many ways, but I tend to think of it in those four ways. And let me briefly say something about production and then consumption. So production, I guess the way I look at it is that if you look into the future and imagine what global, the, the global demand for food will be in 50 years time, Now, to a certain extent, it's crystal ball gazing, and we don't know exactly what it is, but the vast majority of projections suggest that we will need somewhere in the region of 40 or 60% more food by mid-century. And that's because populations are going up, and the good news are going up at a decreasing rate, but also because we are becoming richer. Again, that's good news. Rich people also have fewer children or slightly less poor people. So there is good news on the consumption side, but we're still going to have to produce 40 or 60% more food. Now, what's the role of the UK in that? I mean, we're a rich country. If we wanted to, we could just import food in. My view is that a good sort of guiding principle, an anchoring principle, is that we should be thinking of producing 40 to 60% more food from our agricultural footprint going into the future as our contribution to that global target in the future. 
So then this gets to your question about how do you uh, relate that to some of our other targets? Now, in order to get to net zero, we're going to have to ne have negative emissions, and those negative emissions will involve growing more trees. In order to meet our biodiversity targets, we're going to have to manage land much more for biodiversity. So for that, for that reason, it seems to me that uh, within our agricultural land, there will be some parts of it that we manage it to have highly productive, highly sustainable agriculture. There will be other parts where we manage the land for a much greater diversity of outputs. So you can imagine some land where the primary thing is not to uh, maximize sustainable yields, but it's part production of private goods, part production of public goods, everything from biodiversity to carbon sequestration, recreation, flood management, and things like that. So to me, that is a way of, of doing it. I know that some of my friends in the environmental community really worry about that and sort of see this as intensification and anti-sustainable. But there are major challenges and I think major research questions there so that we can grow more food from the same or a reduced footprint and to do it more sustainably. So those are some of the issues uh, sort of in, in, in a minute that I think we, we have to tackle around production. Consumption, we will need to eat less of, of the food types that have the greatest environmental footprint. And I think that means eating less meat. I think it is a shame that government does not have greater courage to say this. I think that there is not, and I think one of the reasons they are worried about it is that the people who are involved in livestock production, who quite understandably worry that this is going to be a threat to their livelihoods. To me, there is not necessarily a link between reduced consumption and reduced production, and definitely not a link between reduced consumption and profitability and incomes and things. So I think a narrative around less and better is important. And I think there is a possibility that the production of things such as meat, the more environmentally damaging type of food, if we can do it in this country with great productivity and great environmental sustainability, and if that can replace production elsewhere in the world that is less environmentally sustainable, then that could be an opportunity for British farming. But that will only be an opportunity for British farming if we craft a tariff and trade system that actually allows incentives for greater uh, sustainability. And I don't think we're doing that at the moment. I think we might even be doing the reverse than that if it is true that some of the climate change clauses in the trade agreement with Australia was removed. So if I was in the agricultural industry, I would be arguing very strongly. And to be fair, I think organizations such as the NFU are doing this already, arguing very strongly for a trade and tariff uh, scheme that allows this country's more sustainable agriculture to really flourish. What do you think the role of biofuels is in all of this? And I'm thinking not just the UK, uh, because it may be a little bit different in the UK, but obviously you've got the possibility of removing fossil fuels, but then that it, biofuels actually changes land use and that has other implications. So, so where should we end up with when it comes to biofuels, do you think? So I, I guess one has to distinguish biofuels with BECs, um, biofuels with carbon capture and, and storage. I think there might be a role for it. 
I guess the way I would approach it is by having a very hard-nosed environmental cost-benefit analysis of any particular scheme or suggestion. I think if you look at the history of biofuels and biomass, and actually biofuels tend to be worse than biomass, then especially some of the e European community schemes have actually been net negative to the environment because they've not looked at all the indirect effects. If you're using land to grow biofuels or biomass, then you are shifting production of food elsewhere. And if that's leading to conversion, that can be bad. The counterfactuals of what you would do of what you would do with that land if you weren't using it for biofuels have to be looked at very carefully. Now, my guess, and again, I should say that this is an area that I'm not a great expert in, is that if you independently looked at many biofuels and biomass projects, they would not be net benefit. But I think some would be. And I think you would want to do some anyway, just to increase our understanding and to increase the efficiency of, of how that is done. I think also that some of the way we count our emissions can lead to perverse incentives. So if you count, if you import biofuels and count the emissions due to land use change elsewhere as not part of your, your accounting, then that's just crazy. So right across the kind of UK's approach to getting to net zero has been this idea of the balance between scaling up and using existing technologies and accelerating the development of new technologies. And how do you see that in the kind of the agriculture and land use system in terms of technological use and, and changes? This is another instance of the very complex and very simple. So for me, it's quite simple in that one has to do everything. So one has to try and uh, use best practice at the moment. One has to try and close yield gaps and environmental performance gaps. And one has to invest in new technology, but not convince yourself that investing in new technology will provide the solutions that will obviate the need to do hard decisions now. So I hope I'm a, a sort of rational techno-optimist, if you, if you see what I mean. I'm genuinely excited by some of the opportunities for plant breeding, for precision agriculture, for reducing emissions from livestock production to really make a difference. I think we will see some innovative farming or alternatives to farming, including meat substitutes and alternative proteins. So I think we will see them becoming an increasing part of the, the match. Um, moving outside food, it is extraordinary. You'll know this very well, how costs of photovoltaics have come down and seem to be continue going down. I think we will see other interesting things there. I think that if we can reform some of our perverse subsidies and retool them so that they in incentivize some interesting thing, uh, some interesting things, then that will, if anything, accelerate what, what we are doing. For years, I've always joked about things such as fusion being inevitably 30 or 40 years ahead. Two days ago in the Financial Times, there's a very upbeat article about many private companies being in this. So I love this stuff. I think it's really important. And I think that there is absolutely no reason not to invest in it. 
but you know absolutely not triple underlying this is not a an excuse it's not a get out of jail card we have to take those difficult decisions today well let me put you on the spot just to finish off with for for difficult decisions you talked earlier on about uh, one of the successes of cop was a ratcheting up each year of different requirements which means that the uk is going to be requested itself to improve its own ndc its national determined contribution at next year's cop where should it go what what can it do how can it strengthen its own ndc between now and this time next year i can't give you a quantitative uh, answer to that because i'm just not into the weeds of exactly how our ndcs work if i was if i was going to say some of the things that i would like the government to do some of the hard decisions that i'd like the government to make over the next 6 months um we will be seeing sooner response to the henry dimbleby's national food strategy which has some very sensible things in about uh, climate change i hope the government will take that up i hope they will go a bit further than henry actually said um including in things such as diet change i think that you know we get irritated to hell with insulate britain when they uh, block our motorways and things but they have a point and i think we need to do a, a a lot on that i think we have we have to look seriously about some of the perverse subsidies that we have out there and i think that when we come to negotiating our post brexit relationships with other countries we need to walk the walk as well as talk the talk and embed uh, climate change in in these agreements so yes i i think we want greater bravery from our government in doing that and i think in a sense all of us as citizens need to sort of help give our governments the the license to do these things i don't often quote jean claude juncker but he said something very smart a few years back often we know what to do we don't know how to get reelected once we we've done it so yeah we want our our politicians to be braver but we as individuals i think have to try and make it easier for them to be braver as well we'll just have to see how brave they are and what happens over the next year that's all we've got time for today professor charles godfrey thank you very much thanks a lot gavin you've been listening to the podcast from the foundation for science and technology my guest this week was professor sir charles godfrey director of the oxford martin school at the university of oxford Professor Godfrey was also a speaker at an event held by the Foundation for Science and Technology on the 1st of December entitled COP26 where do we go from here a recording of that event and all the associated slides are available on our website at www.foundation.org.uk also on our website are details of all our other events all our blogs and all previous editions of this podcast Next week we're discussing the UK space strategy and my guest will be Dr Paul Bate chief executive of the UK space agency until then goodbye